we, uh, I think, unless you've been on a desert island somewhere in the last few weeks, uh, I think everybody's pretty shaken by what's going on in our co- our country right now, and the, the 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 strife and the division, the violence, and the you know just the uh, lack of peace. Uh, not that it's, uh, our country has ever been a completely, entirely peaceful nation, but, but clearly we're going through times that uh, are very difficult. And we're, you know, we're divided along racial lines. We're divided along political lines. We're divided along economic lines. And, and almost any line you can pick, the division, which has always been there, seems to be getting wider and deeper. And you know, when you look at that, uh, people have their solutions that they put forward. And I think the biggest one uh, is people put forward the idea that there's a political solution to all this. And on one level, depending on how you define politics, uh, that might be true. But what I want to say today, this week, last week, this week, next week, we're, we're just trying to talk some about politics, and today I want to talk about the politics of the cross, because if you want to know God's provision for human divisions that have existed as long as human beings have existed, it's in the cross. And I want to take you to a, a text in one of the letters to the New Testament uh, Christians, uh, the, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and if you have a Bible with you, you need to open up to that passage. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul, as we look at this, Paul's going to sh- tell us about a profound racial division that existed in that time. Again, <laughs> To, to just show us that it, nothing, nothing on the earth is new and that the racial divisions that we're experiencing right now, have, have, they, they are a part of, of human life. And Paul is telling them how God changed the racial division at that time. And he's explained to them what it was like, uh, how... It changed, and then what, it, what the, the division was, how it was changed, and then what it was like after it was changed. So I want to read this passage to you. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. You can follow along with me. These paperback Bibles in the chair seats in front of you will help you track along. It's page 811. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called Excuse me, let me go back up. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, so Gentiles and Jews, and that circumcision is done in the body by the hands of people, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near 
through the blood of Jesus. So he's, he's, this is the first clue Paul's giving us is that, that God is interested in every situation where there's alienation. And that what Jesus came to do was to address every kind of alienation. The alienation that we can feel in our own hearts about ourselves. The alienation between people. In a marriage, in families, at work, neighbors, strangers, ethnically different people, nationalities. I mean, every kind of situation where people who are far off from one another and we'll see far off from God, Jesus came to bring people who were far off near. So pay attention to that. And he says, for he himself is our peace, who made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, as through Jesus, we, have, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, or in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words. They, it's an amazing picture, an amazing promise. And uh, we pray that, that you would open our hearts up, as, as you always promise you will, uh, to your wisdom. And not just your wisdom, Lord, but to what you want to invite us into today. And what you want to do in our world as, as we are drawn to one another and to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So he starts off in verse 11 and 12, and, and he gives this long description about how Jews and Gentiles were alienated. So he, basically, there's three parts to this passage. First, he says, he describes what it's like to be living without peace. So he's talking about this, the racial tension that was going on at that time. Then he talks about how Christ made peace. So where there's no peace between races... Jew and Gentile, and it was a deep alienation. It's, it's easily as deep as any racial tension we have in our country today. How Christ made peace. And then he describes at the end of this, from verse 19 to 22, what it looked like to live together in peace. And you know, politics are defined uh, in a variety of ways, but one of the ways that they're defined is the the art and the science of living together. It's not just the art of government. Because the word polis comes from a word that means citizens, people. So the, the polis of a city were the people that lived in a community. And politics is how they get along, how they interact. And so this, this is, I will argue, 
This is about the politics of the cross and how the cross impacts politics and how people interact with one another. And it holds out this hope that is the only hope. It's, it's been the only hope in history that's healed racial divides. It has been, throughout history, the only thing that has ever brought people together. See, now, you may say, well, John, hold it. There's people all over the place who, who get along. Well, are they, are they really together, or are they more or less at a truce, where they're not killing each other? Really, that's more the case throughout history where people finally get to the point where they say, we're just sick of killing each other. We're just sick of fighting. So we're just going to kind of tolerate each other. But they don't, that's not God's vision for what politics is supposed to be like. That's not God's vision for what life in his world is meant to be. It's different than that. It's peace. That is not peace. A truce is not a peace. Do you see the difference? But, you know, we're so used to so much antagonism that if people just stop fighting, we go, all right, you know, heaven has come to earth. People aren't killing each other anymore. That just shows you we don't know what normal is. So this passage tells us what normal is. And Paul is saying something to these Ephesians because Ephesus was a profoundly divided city. You can go back to the scholars and their descriptions of Ephesus, and they had a Jewish quarter, they had a Roman quarter, they had a Greek quarter, they had a you know, Persian quarter, they, and they had walls between them. And there would be you know, gates. And people were very careful about going through some parts of the city if, because at a given point, the people in this quarter and the people in this quarter weren't getting along. And so to the people in this quarter that had to go to that quarter wouldn't walk through that quarter because they would risk violence or they would risk stirring up violence just by walking through it. But in, in this city, the, the, the gospel advanced and impacted the city to such a degree that the church was made up of people from all these alienated quarters. And they didn't just get along. They laid their lives down for each other. They lived in this sense of unity and community, which was unlike what anybody had seen in the world. And you can read about this. If you go back in the ancient records, you can read about the, the outsiders looked at the church and said, those people have something that nobody else has. And what is it? It's the gospel. It's, it's Jesus. So Paul says that in verse 11 and 12, the Jews and the Gentiles were deeply alienated. And amongst all the alienation, Jews and everybody else did not get along. And Paul reminds them in this passage, he says, ultimately, it's your sins, our sins, are at the heart of what alienates us. It's not economics. Not that that doesn't play a role. It's not politics. Not that that can't play a role. There's lots of things that that we cling to, and and they're certainly a part of of the issue, but it's not laws, ultimately. It is 
a spiritual issue. What Paul says is, the spiritual issue of sin is at the heart of all the alienation. All of it. It can boil down to that. And so, here in a political season where we're about to elect a president, we're about to elect senators, representatives, we're going to have elections on every political level, every, you know, uh, every social level, governmental level. We're going to hear this drumbeat of, like uh, Adam said earlier, if Trump doesn't get elected, or if Hillary Clinton doesn't get elected, or a third party or a fourth party or a seventh party person doesn't get elected, the republic's over. It's, you know, just, just flush. Because we're, we're going down the tube. And that's just a silly notion. Now, it's not that, it's not, don't, you won't ever hear me say that an election doesn't make any difference. But Jesus is the one who makes the most difference. He is the one who changes the underlying spiritual issue at the heart of all the divisions. So here's the thing. Wouldn't you say, is there anybody in this room who would say our political system is broken? All of us, right? There's a few bold people who say, yeah, maybe it's broken. How can you use what's broken to fix what's broken? But if nobody has another option, then we just keep trying it. Maybe it'll work one of these times. And it just gets worse and worse and worse, doesn't it? So that was a situation they faced. So 11 and 12, he says, listen, there was profound alienation. And here's how Jesus fixed it. I want you to read through this with me. You have to track with me. He starts off in verse 13. He says, but now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. So again, Jesus came to bring people who were far off and bring them near. People and God. Christ accomplished this by by fulfilling. So he says, uh, for he himself is our peace. So he's the key to it. The peace we're seeking, Paul says, is found in Jesus. It's not found in a political solution. Not that a political solution won't come out of our life in Christ. Because there are political solutions that will be helpful. There are ways of living, acting out, that make a difference. But you can't produce those without a source that empowers you to rise above the powers of the world that we live in and and the brokenness of this world. And so Paul says, He himself is our peace who made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And here's how he did it. By abolishing in his flesh, in other words, Jesus and who he was and what he did on the cross, he abolished the law with its commandments and regulations. And so, he's talking about the ceremonial law where where the Jewish people were, because their covenant with God, they were commanded to not eat certain things, to observe certain ceremonial things, and then they were given a moral law to live by. And so what happened was when Christ came, he perfectly fulfilled all the commandments of the law because nobody ever kept it. If you read the Old Testament, over and over and over, the prophets kept saying, God is with you, 
but you're violating his covenant. And when you violate it, God's going to discipline you. And bad things are going to happen. Choose today if you want to live or if you want to die. Well, they kept choosing over and over and over not to be faithful. And then the consequences of that kept crashing and burning in their lives. And so Jesus came along and he fulfilled the law perfectly. And he abolished the ceremonial law and he gave everyone the power to keep the moral law in him. And he covered all of our past sins, our sins past, present, and future. And so in Jesus, all of a sudden, what is the issue? What do we say? What is the issue of all the political strife? It's our sin. Jesus came and lived this perfect life and he says, if you put your trust in me, you will be united. In other words, if you put your trust in what I did for you on the cross, my whole life, and then what culminated on the cross where I paid for your sins, if you put your trust in me, you will be united with me, and the life that I lived will begin to be available to you. And sometimes the New Testament calls it being born again. Other times it calls it being raised from the dead. Other times it calls it eternal life that we receive something, this dynamic, in the person of Jesus. It's not apart from Jesus. Do you understand this? Like God doesn't give us a gift card, an eternal life gift card, that we just go through life and we're just swiping it and living the good life. No, the eternal life comes in the person of Jesus. It comes in a relationship with him. It doesn't come through liturgies. It doesn't come through laws. It comes through a person. We receive a person. That's what he says here. He is our peace. He is our peace. So what he did on the cross broke the power of evil and sin in the world. And those who enter into his life begin to be able to escape the gravitational pull of sin. They begin to be able to live not just in a life that's defined by being a, a, having a truce with the people with which you're alienated, but that you actually, he says here, you actually become one with those people. That a unity and a union and a reconciliation is possible because of Jesus. Because Jesus, he, you know, it, it all culminated on the cross where the people that hated him, that killed him, were mocking him. And even on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them because they're out of their minds. They have no idea what they're really doing here. Yet they were still guilty of what they were doing. But you see that the power of the life of Jesus, even on the cross, where we put him, we put Jesus there. All of us. We were part of the humanity that did that. Anybody who thinks we would have been different than anybody else who was there, you're just fooling yourself. We've all proved it by how we've let people down and we've denied people and we've compromised and we've broken uh, promises that we've made. All of us. This is what we do as human beings. But Jesus, nevertheless, despite all I mean, the, the, just the tidal wave of evil that broke over his life, it broke over him and it broke. And he was raised from the dead to vindicate, 
to, 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 for, so he would be vindicated as the only Savior. And that if we hitch our lives to his wagon, he takes us where we can never go. But he's the only one that can get us there. Because we have people like, like heroes from Japan. We have people from Nigeria in our church, from the Middle East. We have people from, from South America. We have people from all over the place in this church. And racism like we have here is in all those places. It looks a little different, but it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Anybody who's ever been anywhere else knows that. We're not unique. Doesn't mean it's not tragic and terrible, but it's true. And and it was going on back in the first century. So Paul says, when we were joined to Christ, God created this new humanity, and our alienation begins to dissolve. And this new unity begins to be birthed in our hearts and lives. Now, if your vision is not that, you've missed God. If your vision, if you're sitting here, you're listening to me on a podcast, if your vision is not to be united with the people that you feel really far away from, you don't have God's vision. If you just wish that we could just all get along, as Rodney told us years ago, poor guy was beaten by police, and he was a flashpoint for all kinds of of distress. And at a certain point, he just said, you know, can't we all just get along? Remember Rodney King said that? But we don't want to just get along. We want to be at peace. We want to be one in the way we're meant to be. And it is possible. Paul describes it in the church there. You can see where the church, where the gospel has really penetrated people's lives. This happens. All over our world today, this is, this is changing communities. So Christ then, it says, he, re- he reconciled us to one another. And then this new reconciled person Next, he says it rec- he reconciled us to God. And he says that this purpose to reconcile us, what he did is there's two kinds of hostility. He keeps saying in here, twi- he said twice in here, this wall of hostility. And I, I mentioned this to you guys before, but if you went into the temple in Jerusalem, and the temple courts, there was a, a, there was a wall, an initial wall when you went up to it, inside the temple court that was called the court of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles, because God said, my temple is a a house of prayer for all nations. And so what the Jews did is they said, okay, we don't like the Gentiles, but we want to do what God says, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a wall in the temple court, a wall. And we're going to put a sign on it. And they've actually archaeologically recently, they uncovered around that area they were digging. And they found a stone dating back to the first century, which had this inscription on it in several languages. If you're not a Jew and you go past this point, you'll probably get killed. Welcome. <laughs> you know, isn't that, the, isn't that, doesn't that sound like God's welcome, Matt? This is... The court of the Gentiles that God designed for the Gentiles to come and seek God. And the Jews not just 
have some sort of you know, minimal barrier. They have a wall up, and on the wall they put a sign that says, Stay out. We despise you. And that's the idea that a lot of us have about what race reconciliation looks like. Well, we'll let you hang around. Back in the South, we called it separate but equal. You know, you can have your schools and we'll have our schools. And, of course, your schools are going to really suck. But at least you have a school. You should be grateful for that. And it's just, that's the vision that we have. That's what sin does to us. Instead of us saying, those kids and their education should be just as good as ours. And we should spend whatever it takes so that they're as good as ours. And I understand there's complications with you know, real estate values, and et cetera, et cetera. But you see, the heart of God says, I don't care if there's complications. Those kids should have the opportunities that my kids have. And I know sometimes people who live in neighborhoods mess up schools and they do things to undermine it. Then we're going to invest time and energy and money to try to help those communities. But we don't do that. We just say, we just argue for equality uh, you know, uh, of opportunity, and I'm for that. But we know there has to be some point where we look at that and go, that's just wrong. We have to have a vision that's different than that because the gospel shapes us because it's, it's the way that God treated us. He hasn't just left us in the mess that we've made. He's come into the mess, and I'll, I'll show you this in a second. And that's supposed to change us. And so the hostility, that wall, Paul said that the grace of God broke that wall down. That now the Gentiles can come right up, right up to the temple. In fact, not just up to the temple and then offer their sacrifices. They can go in the temple. And not just in one part of the temple where the priests are. But they can go into the very Holy of Holies where only one Jew can go once a year. And he says not only that, but that, the Greek name for that, that part of the temple, is the name for the church now. That's made up of Jew and Gentile. Whoa! What a different vision than we have. What a completely different world it would be if we realized that the presence of God is for everybody and it's, and it, and it's based on the same thing Jesus did for us. But here's the thing. He says there's a hostility that we have to encounter not just with one another, but God is hostile towards our rebellion. That's what Paul says. We've been rebellious. We've, each of us, like sheep, gone our own way. And it has wrecked everything. And each of us are responsible for that. So Jesus took all of the penalty for that on the cross for us in our place. Not just for the bad Gentiles. Well, I guess we're all Gentiles here, but sometimes in church we act like the Jews when they were acting their worst. And we look at people outside as the Gentiles who, you know, I guess they deserve, I guess Jesus died for them, but we're not going to make much of an effort to let them know that or show it. Uh, we're just going to, if, if they squeak in here every once in a while, you know, we'll kind of tolerate them. I mean, they can have some coffee at our coffee bar too, right? Just don't spill on our floor. <laughs> That's how we think. Because the gospel hasn't shaped us deeply enough, that hostility is still at work in us, and we have to recognize it because 
What the world around us thinks affects us. And if we don't drench ourselves in the good news, and and in the end we're going to do the Lord's Supper here, if we don't get the Lord's Supper, and we don't let it do its work on us, we don't let the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit shape our hearts together, we are going to act just as gnarly as everybody does in the world. But we'll just smile and we'll wear crosses and we'll, and we'll sing wonderful songs and God will bless our, his, us with his presence. But we'll go out there and we're going to act just like everybody else. And the gospel is supposed to produce something different if you're getting a hold of it. So, have you to hear, any of you here, not ever really surrendered your life to Jesus. Because Paul talks about reconciliation with one another. You know how I always do this thing? God reconciles us with one another and to himself through Christ. But just because Jesus died on the cross doesn't mean that does anything for you unless you receive it. Like, like look in verse... Uh, 13, it says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. What he's saying is, only the people who are in Christ, who have committed their life to Christ and surrendered their life to him, have been united with Jesus and then experienced that reconciliation that he's talking about. They experienced the change of heart. Won't belabor this point, but I remember that was the first thing, uh, the second thing I remember about becoming a Christian when I was. 18 years old, my freshman year in college, I remember when I accepted Christ, two things, because I didn't really have a church background or didn't know the Bible, two things immediately were real to me. One was, I knew God was real and that somehow I had a relationship with him. I didn't get all of the nuances of how Jesus made that real, except I accepted Christ, and all of a sudden, wow, God's real. I know it. God's, wow, he's good, he's loving. I kind of started this relationship with him. Second thing that happened to me was my heart started to change towards people. The hardness of my heart towards people started softening. And it wasn't because I I set out, I don't want to be a hard-hearted person anymore. I didn't even know I was hard-hearted. I mean, 18, you may think, how hard-hearted can you be? You can be pretty hard-hearted at 18. Trust me, I was. And I was a get-along-with-everybody kind of person, but inside I had this alienation. I had enough hurts in my life at that point already. I was just starting to withdraw and, and stay disconnected from people except up to a certain point where I could use them. I'd be as nice to people as I could be to use them. And Jesus just started changing that. And that's what Paul says happens here when you really meet Jesus. But I'm going to give you a chance before we take communion, if you ever ask Christ in your life to do that today, all right? Uh, now, Jesus' goal, this is the point I want you to take away from what we talked about today. Jesus' goal, his ultimate goal, is to reconcile people to one another and people to God. People to one another and people to God. It's the cross. It's the message of the cross. What does it look like? Okay, this is where the rubber meets the road. What does this look like? Look at verse 19. Paul gives us three images 
that tell us what this reconciliation looks like. First, he says that you're citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Then he says, you're members of the household of God. Then he says, you're being built together into a temple. So you're like living stones. He doesn't say, use that word, but he's saying you're being built together into a temple. Watch this. You probably read this your whole life and you never picked this up. Watch the increasing level of intimacy that Paul describes in these three images. The first image, citizens of a kingdom. When you're the voting members of a community, you have a solidarity with one another. You have common interests. Okay, if you're an outsider, you don't. He says, you were an outsider, now you're an insider. Because of Jesus, you all are part of this select... And, 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 And get this too, there are amazing privileges with each of these three images that everybody wanted, but there's also responsibilities with it. First privilege, you're a part of the citizenship of heaven. You've got some affinity with each other. Now, it gets closer. You're members of the household of God, your family. That's closer, right? than even this, than citizens. That's closer. And in an age where there was war and sickness and all kinds of things where, that destroyed family ties, to be part of a family meant you could thrive, not just survive. You could at least survive, but you could even thrive because a family, a tribal unit, gave you some solidarity and opportunity and protection and provision. And so a lot of people were alienated and on their own, and they, they were orphans. They were slaves. No one cared about them. All of a sudden, you're in the family of God. And there are people in that family who have stuff that, will, that they will be inclined to help you with. Then he goes even closer. He says, you're the temple of God. You're built together. And it, as you're built together... The more you're built together, you become a dwelling of God in which His Spirit lives. I think these are three stages of growth and commitment in the life of a believer. The way that you look at your involvement in a local church, in a community of faith, are just like this. A lot of times, it's just like you're a voting citizen. It's the first stage that people experience when they come to Christ. Is they're just, yeah, I'm kind of part of these guys. But, you know, we're not super tight. And then you grow, and you begin to connect and have friendships and relationships. And there's a vibrancy to that. And there's something that you're not uh, alone anymore. You're not just a molecule in the room you're, you actually know people and are connected. Then there's another level where you are, your life is deeply connected. And Paul holds a precious part of this privilege until the very end he says, this is where you become a dwelling of God by his spirit. Now, I don't mean that God, you don't experience the Holy Spirit here, but Paul withholds that description until the very end. And he says, there's something of my blessing that rests here 
when you allow your life to integrate with other people. See, being a citizen is one step in from being the way the world is. This is a truce out here at the very best. Here is not a truce anymore. We, we have a common identity. Now we have a deeper identity. Now we have an even deeper identity. This is God's goal. This is where he wants us to live. This is where he wants everybody to live, no matter what color you are, no matter what economic status you are, no matter what educational status or how you look, how old you are, how young you are, but that's not the way the world works. Birds of a feather flock together in the world. Look at our community. Look at Dublin. Economically, it's very monolithic in terms of all those things. And you move around. And there are people that would move into Dublin if they could afford to live in a place like this. There's a lot of benefits to it. But, you know, you move down. We used to live in the campus area. And, you know, we had a $35,000 house. And we had one income family. And it, and it, you know, it was a pretty simple lifestyle. Uh, we didn't have air conditioning until my kids were teenagers. And, you know, it got hot down there. And everybody else was like that. And maybe there were people who lived in our neighborhood who had two incomes, but they were two incomes that were basically minimum wage incomes. And the whole lifestyle down there was different than up here. Kathy and I marvel all the time how, gosh, it's just safe up here. <laughs> we, we, we walk around and where, where we lived. You didn't walk around and feel safe. My kids got beat up. Uh, you know, in the neighborhood and got stuff stolen, coming home from places. Bikes stolen, my car got stolen. Uh, one time someone broke into my van and put a dead possum in it. And I thought, is this some kind of like West Virginia gang symbol? Like I'm in trouble with, you know, the gap tooth gang in the neighborhood? <laughs> Serious. I remember it was in the winter, and I, it was like a popsicle. I picked this thing up by the tail, and it was stiff. And it was like, the tongue was out, and I'm going, this is really weird. I'm going to write this in my journal. <laughs> but that's a different world than it is up here. But don't you think God wants this world to be different than that? Don't you think that? Didn't you think Jesus came for something more than what we have? So where are you, to, to, to bring this to a close, where are you, if you're a follower of Jesus, are you at the citizenship stage where you bought in and, you know, hey, I'm, I'm into Jesus and I'm kind of into being part of a church, or I got friends and family. I'm, I'm way more connected than I thought it could ever be. Or have you gotten to the place where your life is deeply connected with other people in the body? And that what happens to them matters to you. And you're not just cordial. You're close. Where are you? Are you here? Are you here? Are you here? Citizens, members of the household, or are you a temple that's built together and formed together. You're missing something. You're missing something if you're outside the citizenship part. Maybe some of you need to step in, but what's the next step for you? Paul said in this passage, he said, Jesus is the cornerstone. So 
Here's the key. If you want to know, how do I do this, John? How do I go from stage to stage? You have to do the same four things just at a deeper level over and over and over. Because when Jesus gave his life for us, here's the four things he did that made a difference for us. Number one, he valued us. We'll talk about this next week with respect to our neighbors and outsiders. Jesus valued us. Beyond valuing us, he identified with us. The Bible says he was numbered among the transgressors. So do you, if you look around, let me just look, take those two points. Do you value the other people around you as much as you value yourself and your family and your interests? Because Jesus said the cornerstone of the new creation is everybody whose life is built on me values other people the way I value other people, which is I valued you as much as I value myself. That's what Jesus did. Greater love has no one in this than he laid down his life for his friends. Secondly, do you identify with each other? You have to ask yourself these questions. These are really fundamental, simple questions. I was praying about this, and, and I said, Lord, what does it mean for you to be the cornerstone? And these four things came to my mind. I just feel like the Lord said, I valued you, John. I identified with you when you were messed up and I fought for you. That's the third thing. I fought for you. Your plight and your situation disturbed me enough that it cost me something to invest in you. And then fourth, I united myself with you. So you move through these stages by increasingly doing those four things, valuing someone more than you do now. Do you see it? It's, it's kind of shocking to think this way because this sounds like some super special thing that, wow, only the really, really committed people are like this. No, everyone's supposed to be like this because Jesus is the cornerstone and our lives are built on him. So you valued, you identify with, What's the third one? You fight for them, and then you unite yourself with them. You stick with them. You connect to them. Now, pull this out of the way. When we take the Lord's Supper... It's telling us that Jesus valued us, that he identified with us, that he fought for us, and that he unites himself with us. And he says, if you will surrender your life to me, if you will welcome me into your life, I will help you begin to move into that place and that vision I have for you. Years ago, I read this book, and it's all the pages are falling out. And it's just a profound book. And the vision that we're talking about of peace 
Peace in the New Testament comes from the Hebrew word shalom. You guys have heard the word shalom before. And shalom wasn't just peace. It wasn't just a truce. I want to read to you a vision of peace that, that, that Alvin Plantinga, who wrote this book, describes. And he says, he says this. It's, it's a, a tad long, but uh, I'll read it. In fact, if the folks who are going to pass out the elements, if you could come up and, and grab these elements and stand there while I'm reading this, we could uh, get into communion as soon as I finish. As the great writing prophets of the Bible knew, sin has a thousand faces. The prophets knew how many ways human life can go wrong because they knew how many ways human life can go right. You need the concept of a wall on plumb to tell when one is off. These prophets kept dreaming of a time when God would put things right again. They dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out. Rough places made plain. They dreamed the foolish would be made wise, the wise humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower, the mountains would run with wine. Now, these are scripture summaries of Old Testament passages all through the Old Testament of the dreams that God gave the prophets when they looked at difficult times and saw what one day when the when the Messiah, the Prince of Shalom, the Prince of Peace would come, that he would change things. The mountains would run with wine, weeping would cease, and people would go to sleep without weapons on their laps. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. Lambs could lie down with lions. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all nature and all humans would look to God, walk with God, lean towards God, and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from valleys and seas, from women in streets and men on ships. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation, and justice, fulfillment, and delight is what Hebrew prophets call shalom. It would include, for instance, strong marriages, and secure children. Nations and races in this brave new world would treasure differences in other nations and races as attractive, important, and complementary. In the process of making decisions, men would defer to women and women to men until a crisis arose. Then, with good humor all around, the person more naturally competent in the area of the crisis would resolve it to the satisfaction of pleasure both. Government officials would still take office. Somebody had to decide when streets are cleaned on Tuesday and which on Wednesday. But to nobody's surprise, they would tell the truth and freely praise the virtues of other public officials. Public telephone booths, you remember those? You ever, okay. Public telephone booths would be left intact. You ever, you ever open up? open up one of the directories, and the page you were looking for was gone. Public telephone booths would be left intact. Highway overpasses would be graffiti-free. Tow truck drivers and erring motorists would be serene on inner-city streets. Business associates would rejoice in one another's promotions. Middling Harvard students would respect the Phi Beta Kappas from the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople and would seek to learn from them. 
Intercontinental ballistic missile silos would be converted into training tanks for scuba diving. All around the world, people would stimulate and encourage one another's virtues. Newspapers would be filled with well-written accounts of acts of great moral beauty. And at the end of the day, people on their porches would read these and savor them and call to each other about them. Above all, in the visions of Christians and other theists, God would preside in the unspeakable beauty for which human beings long and in the mystery of holiness that draws human worship like a magnet. In turn, each human being would reflect and color the light of God's presence out of the inimitable resources of his or her own character and essence. Human communities would present their ethnic and regional specialties to to other communities in the name of God and glad recognition that God, too, is a radiant and hospitable community of three persons. In their own accents, communities would express praise, courtesies, and deferences that when massed together would keep, would keep building like waves of a passion that is never spent. So, we are supposed to experience this first, and we're going to talk about this next week, how peacemakers. We have to experience this peace, Jesus as our peace, amongst us. We at least want to be together. If we can't get past the truce stage of counterfeit Christianity into citizenship and then household and then temple levels of connection, we will have nothing for the world outside. So as you come and take these elements today, what is your next step? What is your next step? God is saying, what I did in your heart and reconciled you to myself included reconciliation to other people and to a people like the vineyard. If the vineyard's your church home, the Lord is saying, I have something for you to be for this community, but you can't be that unless you're that to each other first. Unless you're moving through these levels of intimacy on a steady journey. So, Allow the Lord to search your heart, you know, as you take these elements today because they picture what Jesus did for you. And they picture the vision. This is one table that we all partake of together. Despite our national differences, economic differences, educational differences, whatever other differences that are there, the Lord says those, the beauty of those things will be discovered if you will allow yourselves to come to the foot of the cross and open your heart to me and surrender. Surrender. And let me make you the kind of people that look like the age to come so when you preach the gospel to people, they're drawn 